Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night. And I'm very pleased to welcome our special guest, actress, producer Karen Kramer, also known as Karen Sharp, to film and television audiences. Her late husband was one of the legendary producers of all time, Mr. Stanley Kramer. Welcome, Karen. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you know, uh, you, uh, how do I begin? I mean, obviously, I want to get into the high and the mighty, but I want to talk a little bit about um, about your early days. Uh, since we're so devoted to classic movies here and everything related to movie watching, I was wondering if you would journey back in time to your youth and tell me, were you a moviegoer from an early age? Did the family encourage moviegoing? No, uh, not necessarily. If I was um, had all my homework done and had been a good girl and my grades were at a certain level, then on Saturday night, we went to the movies. My I'm an only child, so it was my mother and my father and myself. Now, I was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, but I'm a Democrat. Okay, so... Um, I say that laughingly because it's not known as a democratic state. Um, and, you know, I went to the movies on Saturday night, a lot of Westerns, actually, in Texas. Um, Gene Autry movies, Roy Rogers movies. And quite frankly, it didn't interest me much. But finally, there was a movie when I was about nine years old called The Jolson Story, starring Larry Parks. Um, that changed my life completely. I'm not a musical star. I never was a, a, a wonderful singer or dancer, but there was just something about the Al Jolson story and Larry Park's performance that made me decide at nine years old that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an actor. Well, planes didn't take off that often to Los Angeles. There was no way I was going to be able to accomplish this at that age. And um, But I am a great believer in fate and luck. And I've had a lot of wonderful things happen by fate and by luck. S strangely enough, my father's brother, who lived in Indiana, was in the pharmaceutical business, and he was transferred to Los Angeles. Being my father's only brother, we came out to Hollywood to visit him. And all I could think of was meeting Larry Parks, and he was married to Betty Garrett. And I knew who she was. I had scrapbooks on the two of them. Wouldn't you know, the second day I'm in Los Angeles, my uncle was taking us to see the sights. And um, I can't tell you how beautiful California was in those days. But anyway, he took us to the Beverly Hills Hotel. And as we were going into the Beverly Hills Hotel, Coming out of the Beverly Hills Hotel was Larry Parks and Betty Garrett. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> my 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 was a fan, of course, but I was a little girl too, and I went screaming. I'm oh my god! I I I have the scrapbook, and I I'm only in town for a few days. And they said to me, they were so sweet to me. They said, "Why don't you come by our house?" tomorrow we'll give you the address i said i know where you live i've already cased it out you live in nicholas canyon <laughs> I looked in the movie magazines and I, and I found your house the first day i was here i found your house we'll come by tomorrow and we'll sign your scrapbook 
and take pictures and everything. So, of course, at the appointed time, my mother and my father and myself showed up. And sure enough, they took pictures. They signed the scrapbook, all that wonderful thing. And a few days later, I went back to San Antonio, Texas. And I made my family miserable. <laughs> I mean miserable. till I could get back out here and pursue an acting career. And by the time I was 15, 14, 15, my mother brought me here. Now, in the meantime, I'd become a very good ice skater. So I used the ice skating situation as a focus to get out here and study skating during the summer because I was really good at it, but our rinks in Texas were closed in the summertime. Right. So I came out here and was asking everybody, you know anybody in show business? Anyway, um, by the time I was... 16, I was in school here permanently. I was living with uh, some guardians that my mother and father had appointed to take care of me that I could live with. I was going to school in the day and I was in theater at night, in theater, um, learning my craft. And I got discovered, as they did in those days. They covered little theaters in those days. And there wasn't that many theaters in town, quite frankly. <laughs> It was the Biltmore and this little theater in Beverly Hills, which I was participating in, playing much older roles than I should have. Um, and I got an agent, a wonderful agent. Um, now, only... Karen, Karen, had you done some performing in Texas? I know you said you were ice skating, but did, had you done school plays? Had you gotten your no. feet wet? No, no I, I, was an, I was a dancer. I, was, I did take dancing lessons. and I was a very good dancer, by the way. Uh, and I appeared in a lot of, you know, those kinds of recitals and things like that. And they did have one theater in Texas called the San Antonio Little Theater. And I did, I did play Dinah in, um, in a very major um, play um, starring Catherine Hepburn, originally for the film, The Philadelphia Story. And it was a good production. I got great notices <laughs> and uh, came out here and there really wasn't any place to study. There wasn't any how-to, you know? And so I learned in theater on the job. And I got discovered by a talent scout and uh, now, put me... Uh, given that there's all these great stories about where talent scouts find their 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 talent, uh, do, uh, can you remember where you were discovered? Yeah. That little theater in Beverly Hills. Um, and um, I was playing roles that were much older than I was. I was much more mature at 16 than I am probably right now. <laughs> I, I was very sophisticated and very mature and uh, looked much older than I am at the time and, and than I was at that time. And oh, that, I got, can, that can be dangerous. <laughs> can it not be dangerous? But, well, look, Elizabeth Taylor was playing older roles too when she was just about 16 or 17 years old. So it wasn't really unusual. There was a sort of sophistication in those days. Sure. Uh, that kind of went with it. It was not necessarily what happened later when Marlon Brando came along, but before that, there was a certain sophistication. And um, the first film I ever did was about three or four lines in a Stanley Kramer movie called The Sniper. And, how, how ironic is that? Well, it was really, my whole life has been a bookend. It's bookended itself so strangely in such a wonderful way. I never met Stanley at that time. Eddie Dimitrik was the director. Right. Um, and that led me, I was still in high school, 
Um, it led me to getting a, a major lead in a kind of a VC movie, a small budget movie. They made them in 10 days at Monogram, and I was the leading, leading role in it, um, which got me another very good notice. Now, which, and, which movie at Monogram? Well, it was called Army Bound. It starred mm -hmm. Stanley Clements and myself. Stanley Clements was probably part of a, no, not our gang comedies, but he was. Oh, he was one of the Bowery Boys. That's, you got it. That's right. So, sure. so I later worked with him again. But um, that got me to the next movie, which was Bamba and the Jungle Girl. <laughs> with, with Johnny Sheffield. That's the one. Yes, that's and, right. And, and that must have been a hoot to be in. It was with seven days, seven to eleven days. Um, you did them in a week in those days. And Ford Beebe, I remember, directed it, and Walter Mirisch produced it. Can you believe that? That was Walter. Can you believe Walter Mirisch. Yes, I'd forgotten all that until I sat next to him not too long ago, and he said, "What was your first movie?" And I said, "Oh, The High and the Mighty." And he said, "Oh, well, what about Bamba and the Jungle Girl?" I said, "For <laughs> I said, how would you know that?" He said, "Karen." I produced it. <laughs> I didn't remember that. Same thing with Eddie Dimitrik when I sat next to him at a dinner party. This is when I was married to Stanley. And he said, Karen, what was your first movie? Same damn dialogue. And I said, well, um, Behind the Mighty. And he said, well, what about The Sniper? I said, The Sniper? Well, I only had two or three lines in that. He said, well, I directed it. Don't you remember? I said, well, I was trying to forget it, but okay, yes, I, I didn't know it was a Stanley Kramer movie. But anyway, so now, those are my, my beginnings. When you mention a title like Bamba and the Jungle Girl, you have I have visions of you running around probably uh, the um, Arboretum out in Santa Anita. Where was the jungle? It was shot in, uh, in Pasadena. Okay, there you go. And I played a, a girl on safari with her father who has a relationship then with uh, a friendship, I would say, with Bamba. I was his leading lady. And Johnny Sheffield and I became great, great friends. Um, and then I had this wonderful agent that, that uh, only handled 10 people. Each one of us had to wait their turn till the one before us was set. His name was Leon Olance. He had Kim Stanley. He had James Arness, then me, then Diane Baker, and then Stuart Whitman. So he was he was just a hands-on agent, and they don't exist anymore. I wish to God they did. But he took me on an interview for The High and the Mighty, which I didn't know anything about, really. And their offices, which was called Batjack, it was John Wayne's company, right. it was about a block and a half from... Mr. Lance's office, which was on Sunset Boulevard. And Batjack was on a little side street down the street from Leon's office, Leon uh, um, Lance's office. And he took me in for an interview, but he didn't have an appointment. He was famous for doing this kind of thing. And when we arrived, um, Mr. Wellman, William Wellman, was the director of this major film that was made through Warner Brothers and uh, had an all-star cast. Um, and he, he, Andrew McLaughlin was the AD, the assistant director. Mr. Wellman was not there. And Andy McLaughlin said, you know what? You would be perfect 
to play Nell Buck, but we're screen testing tomorrow morning at Warner's. And I'm going to take a real chance here. I'm going to give you the sides. It's about a four-page scene. I want you to appear at Warner Brothers tomorrow morning at um, around 7 o'clock. And you'll probably be there for several hours. We are, we are going to be testing 10 couples. And so I'll see you tomorrow. And he gave me the address and all that. So my mother was with me, of course, not on the interview, but she was with me. I was still very, very young. I think I was, in those days, 18 was very young. You know what I mean? Today it is not, but it was in those days. And I thought, well, let's see, what will I wear? He said that she's a high school student, have just graduated from high school, and she's just coming back from her honeymoon with her, um, you know, school friend that she married. And so I'm thinking, what would she wear? And it was in the 50s. It was 1953, I guess. And I thought, well, she probably would be in, have been in school, so she probably would be in a sweater and skirt and maybe bobby socks and some loafers. I didn't have those kinds of clothes. As I told you, I thought I was too sophisticated to look like that. So <laughs> I went out and found myself a skirt and sweater. And when Mr. Wellman came back into the office, he let Andrew McLaughlin have it. He said, how dare you? Tell this young woman, who I have never met, that she can screen test for my film tomorrow morning. He said, you get on the phone right now and you tell her that you made a terrible mistake, but she's not to show up tomorrow morning. Well, I was very lucky because we didn't have cell phones. <laughs> we didn't have message services in those days. Uh, and I was out shopping when he was trying to call me. I didn't know he was trying to call me. And I guess I didn't get home until about 7 or 8 o'clock. Well, he, he wasn't calling me then. So I studied my lines. And instead of getting there at 7, I got there at 6. I've always been early for my calls because Good I like to you. look at the Good land of the land. I want to make sure that the makeup, what they do to me, is going to be right. I always had a sense of always being early so I could take the look at the set, figure it out, how I'm going to shoot this thing and how I'm going to do it. Um, as luck would have it, John Smith, who was a complete unknown like I was, and many of the other people that were testing were unknowns as well. Um, the girl that he was supposed to be testing opposite, you know, we signed our contracts before the screen test so they could be cheap with a payment. <laughs> In other words, if you signed your contract before you tested and you got the part, you were stuck with that, you know, whatever the scale was. You were not getting any more than that, um, which was fine with me. But some people have a problem with that. And uh, the agent that handled this young woman who was supposed to test with John Smith um, pulled out at the last minute that morning. And they didn't know what to do with, 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 with John Smith, who was going to test opposite. So there I was, <laughs> there already, at being in makeup, being ready to test, and didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be there. Nobody told me that. <laughs> So they were so thrilled that I was there because now they had somebody they didn't take too seriously anyway to test op opposite somebody they thought would maybe get the part. They were more interested in John Smith than they were in me. I didn't know any of this. So there was 10 tests. We were about maybe eighth. So I met him on the set in this makeshift kind of airplane passenger seat. 
We shook hands. I didn't know Mr. Wellman either. I'd never met him. I shook hands with him, sat in my seat, and he said, this is what we're going to do. This is what I want from the two of you. And it was a very important scene. It was, you know, some kissing and lots of stuff. I didn't know John at all. He didn't know me either. But he said, okay, we're going to put the, the, uh, the first rehearsal on film. They weren't even going to give us a second chance. So it was really, you know, that's pretty tough. Well, especially if you're going to be intimate with someone you don't even know. Oh, that happens all the time with this on film, you know. <laughs> so did I know that? No, but but you know, I uh, I done theater, you know, I done a few things. So I I just you know I just just did it. And when we finished the scene, he said he was very boisterous about his feelings, whether he liked you or he didn't like you. He would tell you, and he would tell us that the crew would hear it too. He said, "Where have you been, Karen?" He said, you are perfect. You are my Nell Buck. And John, you did good too. And he said, you know what? You both have got the part. That's before we even got out of the seats to say, okay. <laughs> so we had, we had those roles before um, I even left the studio. And then they told me that they didn't want me, but, <laughs> but I got the part anyway. So it was just lucky that I was early, lucky that I didn't have cell phones and message machines and stuff like that in those days. And I missed the call. And I think Andy was a little bit um, a sheepish about calling me and telling me not to come after he just put himself into saying, I want you to come out and test tomorrow morning. So that started a really wonderful career for me. Well, I, you know, it's, it just goes to show you the number of ducks that have to line up in a row sometimes to get to get you to the finish line. Um, it's funny, I, you know, you mentioned the fact that the character you played is Nell Buck. I know that you call your husband, your new husband, Milo. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but does he ever use your name in the movie? I, mm -hmm. I, I've watched the movie a thousand times. I don't know. He doesn't say Nell? I don't think he ever says that. <laughs> um, I, I have to ask you because um, the, it's funny. Uh, you do have a scene in the airport lounge to start the movie because mm -hmm. you know, I think somebody points. I think uh, Doe Avedon looks. Yeah, she does. Because, yeah, and that's right. Like, uh, you think it'll ever happen to me? So I mean, then you get on the plane and you spend essentially the whole movie on the plane. And um, so tell tell me a little bit about that experience of working with all these actors on the plane. What are your memories? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, it was a who's who. Uh, the only unknowns really were John Smith and myself and Doe Avedon. And most everyone else was fairly well known. You know, you had all these great actors there. But, you know, we were a team and, and, and we worked as a team. And it was... The one, the one thing I take away from this film that was so remarkable for me was I had met Jan Sterling um, in a Pine Thomas movie where I had another two or three lines. It was not when I was when I was sixteen, just about just after I did the Sniper, and I met her. She was the leading actress. It was at Paramount. It was a Pine Thomas film in beautiful Technicolor and beautiful costumes and things. And I played um, a younger sister to. Uh, Oh, uh, Gray, what was her name? Hmm. Colleen Gray. Colleen Gray, yes, I played her young, younger sister. Not much of a part of anything like that, but it was, but I met Jan and Colleen too. They were lovely to me, particularly Jan. And when I met her a couple of years later on the set of The High and the Mighty, she remembered me, of course, and 
and she just took me under her wing and became a mentor to me. And um, after this film uh, finished, and uh, I got a Golden Globe. In fact, she was the one that uh, presented the Golden Globe to me for my performance. It really, really help, helped my career a lot. It uh, meant in those days, if you got a good review or you you know, were in a major, major motion picture like The High and the Mighty was, and you got a, an award for that, um, then, you know, it assured you of having a career. Today, that doesn't happen. It doesn't assure you of anything, but in those days it did. And I remember a film that came right after The High and the Mighty uh, was a Western, Man with a Gun, with Robert Mitchum and Jan Sterling. Mm -hmm. And my agent put me up for the role of uh, a young girl that was the third lead in the film. And uh, they didn't they didn't want me. <laughs> and so they didn't think I looked enough like Jan Sterling. I was supposed to look resemble Jan Sterling when she was in love with uh, Robert Mitchum when they were married. And I was supposed to remind Robert Mitchum of her in the in the storyline of the film. And I didn't look anything like Jan, really. I was a, sort of a honey blonde at the time. Um, I changed from the red hair to the honey blonde. And um, I ran into Jan. I don't know. We ran into each other, and she said, well, what about this movie? Are you not going to do this movie? And I said, no, actually, they don't want me at all. And she said, well, well, why don't they want you? I said, well, they want me to resemble you because I remind him, the, the Robert Mitchum character, of you when you were younger. And I just don't look enough like you. She said, really? You just got the Golden Globe. <laughs> you mean that's, that's, he says, I just can't get over that. I said, well, that's the way it is. So unbeknownst to me, she dyed her color, her hair color, mine. She dyed her color of her blonde, very, very blonde hair into a honey blonde color and went into the producers and the director and said, now can Karen get the role? And they gave it to me. <laughs> wow. that, no, that's, that's loyalty. And I said, Jan, what can I ever do to thank you, to tell you how much this means to me? And she said, just do it for someone else, which I never forgot. And I always did that. Pay it forward. And yes, it's exactly right. And we, we remain very good friends for the rest of her life. And, um, and I remember that uh, we spent a lot of time together. And then um, I did a lot, I, you know, once in a while, we were always working. And I was lucky because I was under contract to John Wayne after The High and the Mighty for a few years. And Andy McLaughlin finally directed his first film, which was with me because I was under contract to Bat Jack was the company of John Wayne. And Andy was able to direct me in, in a small budget film with uh, opposite uh, Bill Campbell, which I'd also worked with previously in High and the Mighty and a little walk on thing before that. And um, so these were all friends of mine. And, um, and so when I, when I, when Janny and I did um, Man with a Gun, I think it was a Western, and I just hate Westerns, but anyway, I did a lot of them. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, it did very well. And, and Robert Mitchum, of course, was the big deal. And um, 
he, I worked opposite some fantastic leading men in my lifetime, you know, I, in my career. Really wonderful, well-known, well, special let, guys. Let me, let me jump back to High in the Mighty for a second. Now, yeah. you're working with William Wellman. Now, oh, William yeah. Wellman had, was known as, well, his nickname was Wild Bill Wellman. Yeah. He was such an energetic director with such a storied history. What are your memories of working with him? Was I mean, he obviously has to keep this set totally in 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 constant turmoil because you're on an airplane that's in trouble. Do you have memories of him? Oh yeah, he was scary, <laughs> and he, you know, he didn't he didn't like to rehearse. He liked to tell you how he saw the scene, just like he did my screen test. We never rehearsed it. He put the first rehearsal on film. And, um, you know, you had to be really on your toes because he wasn't a rehearser. And uh, he would often print the first rehearsal as, as a take, which was scary, you know. Um, luckily, I had done some theater, obviously. I stayed in that little theater and would do plays in between anything I was doing in film. And that gave me a background of um, anything can happen, right, on a set. Anything sure. can happen and, and somebody can forget their lines and a lot of other things. But I was always on my toes. In fact, I memorized their part just as much as I memorized my own. So I knew that, and it stood me on good stead because he was scary. But he loved me. He would. He would. He just loved me, and he loved everything I did. And um, But everything you see in The High and the Mighty – was the first take. Did you have any buddies on the set other than John? Did you hang out? No, I didn't like John. I didn't get along with him at all. <laughs> <laughs> you're kidding. No, you're kidding. No, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, I just didn't, I don't know. I just didn't have much, I don't know. I, I, I bonded with Jan Sterling, of course. I love John, Jan Sterling. I, 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 I liked everybody pretty much, but you know, it was a, it was a tough shoot because it was scary. I mean, these were all major, major stars, and uh, John Smith and myself, you know, were, were, and so was Doe Avedon, for that matter, um, knew at this kind of thing, you know. I had some experience, but I wouldn't say not a major part like in The High and the Mighty. Well, you, um, you uh, have the uh, luxury of having worked with John Wayne, which not a lot of current people can say. I mean, I, I had read that early in the pre-production, they actually tried to get Spencer Tracy to play the Dan Roman character, but obviously that didn't take. And then John stepped in and took took a key role in the film. Well, he was the lead in the in the film, and he was Absolutely. also going through a divorce at the time, uh, which was very hard on him, I think. And Spencer would have been great, but I think John Wayne is always John Wayne, and you know, he, he just sells your film no matter what. Sure, and, sure. Uh, so, I mean, you don't uh, have a lot of interaction with him because most of the flight deck is staying on the flight deck. Uh, but you, he does come back when you have to throw all of the luggage over, overboard. Um, the um, he was a, lovely. He was a lovely guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just a, a classic presence, and uh, it seemed to enjoy playing older than he's supposed to be. I know. Yeah, we all. I mean, we all did that. Um, he had certainly had a phenomenal career. And I went under contract to him for several years, actually. And I, I went to him um, and said to him after I finished uh, this little film after The High and the Mighty, besides uh, Man with a Gun with Jan Sterling and uh, Robert Mitchum, I did a little film for Andy McLaughlin, who had really been the one who said, 
you come to the set tomorrow, I'm going to put you in the, we're going to get test you. You know, he was the one that took the, the heat when, when Wellman came back and said, what do you mean you're going to test this girl? I never saw her. How dare you say that? He was just the first AD at the time, but the first time he ever directed a film was for Bat Jack, which was the John Wayne Company name. And he chose me to play opposite some of the people that were in High and the Mighty. Bill Campbell was opposite me. We were the two leads in this little B movie, which is doggone good. I think it's a really good movie. Uh, and Andy directed it. It was his first directorial debut. And so I really have to thank him for really approving me before anybody else approved me. And he took the heat for having approved me, but I did get the role. So, you know, <laughs> he was very proud of himself. Sure. And we remained very good friends. And I got to know John uh, Smith because we did some uh, public appearances together. And I found him to be a lovely man, a, a lovely guy, and, and really liked him a lot. And we got along very well after the film was finished. Well, the movie was a, a big thing for me as because uh, I think I first saw it on Channel 9 in L.A., um, um, the theme song that the, the, the Demetria Tiomkin had done, the, the wonderful theme from The High and the Mind, I think was the signature theme oh, yeah. of Channel 9's movie theater. So it was kind of, you were always hearing that theme. Yeah, it was and a great theme. I, I think the concept of an airliner in trouble, that, that movie was very much one of the first it was. Disaster movies. It was. And then a lot of them followed many years later, however. But it was the first one. But it was such a successful film. I mean, they they, uh, they had this fantastic premiere. And, um, and all the stars, of course, were there. And in those days, we didn't have premieres that often. It was, you know, once in a while. And so it was a huge thing with the bleachers and all the fans and all that kind of stuff. And I, um, they got, they paired me with Tab Hunter who was under contract to Warner's at the time. And Warner Brothers was the, the film company that released it uh, and we had worked with Batjack, which was the name of John Wayne's company. And um, I, met, I met him, strangely enough, they set me up with him and I met him when the limousine had picked him up first and then they picked me up and I met him in the car going to the premiere of The High and the Mighty. And it was a huge premiere at the Egyptian Theater. Oh, right, all on, the, right on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, sure. well, at that time, it was a fantastic situation, you know, with all the fans and all the bleachers with the people. It was like being at the Academy Awards and a real who's who came to see that movie. And um, and so we helped, uh, you know, and Tab Hunter was a big heartthrob, very young, beautiful, good-looking guy, you know. Who, so the lights go down. The film is about to start. We've done the carpet. I've done the interviews with John Wayne. And a lot of people, the fans went nuts when they saw him, of course. And he introduced me to all the fans. He was very sweet. And then when the lights went down to start the movie, he said, he tapped me on the shoulder. and said, Karen, this is where I leave you. I said, what? He said, I have to go to work tomorrow morning. I just came to a score shoot uh, to get all these pictures, but I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm leaving now. And he said, don't worry about anything. The after party, he said, Mr. Wellman will escort you into the party. That would be, you know, William Wellman, the, the director. And there was a big after party. But that's the last time I ever saw Tab Hunter. Um, first and last time. And many years went by. Many years. And I had already, uh, you know, married to Stanley. And Stanley, you know, I, I, Stanley passed away. And so I, so I get a call from, um, oh, who was it that called me? Well, anyway, um, 
I've forgotten who called me, but they were going to have a, a, a resurging, another another high and the mighty at uh, Paramount Studios, an anniversary of sorts. And um, there wasn't that many people alive still from the high and the mighty. A few. And a uh, big red carpet and the whole nine yards. And of course, I was naturally invited to go. So I thought, well, how am I going to make this interesting? Because there's hard, nobody's alive from the movie. I mean, Bill Campbell was still there, and Pedro Gonzalez. Gonzalez was still alive, and very few people and some members of the of the um, of the Wayne family were going to be there. So I thought, I know Tab Hunter, and I hadn't seen him since 1953. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and I didn't get to know him either. So I found him in Montecito, and I called him up. He was living in Montecito, California. I called him up and I said, this is a voice out of your past. I mean, really out of your past. And I said, do you remember me? And he said, well, yes. I didn't think he did really, but okay. And I said, well, we're doing it again. We're, we're having another premiere of this film. And I said, how would you feel about escorting me all over again? And he said, I'd love to. So I met him again. In a limousine, they picked him up first, then they picked me up, and this time we got a chance to talk before we got to the red carpet. So it was his birthday, actually, and I found that out, that it was his birthday, so I gave him a present. I gave him a double 8x10 sterling silver um, frame with a picture of he and I from 1953. Wow. And then another one was empty of the one taking place in, when was it? Um, somewhere in uh, 2000 or something, okay? And he was absolutely, had it engraved. He was so thrilled with that photo. I said, now listen, I got to ask you something. When the lights go down, are you, are you staying? Or are you leaving? <laughs> And he said, "I'm staying because you're my ride." <laughs> I'm sh I'm sure this this uh, this screening was probably had something to do with the fact that the movie was being re-released, re-released because, as you know, the movie was out of circulation for many years. So I know Gretchen was... Gretchen Wayne was it Gretchen Wayne? She was the one I think that really produced that event and I think took care of that whole situation. Well, it was a huge crowd. I must say, we they, they really did us very, they did us proud, believe me. But it was my chance to get a really, to get to know Tab Hunter. And he was, he was just a, the dearest guy. And oh, we became oh. very, very friendly so many years later, you know? I'll, and, bet, I'll bet when he mentioned that he had to get to the lot to work the following morning, this, this problem, this, this original film came out in 54 and i bet mm -hmm. he, he might have been working on battle cry because he that was one of his first big films oh yes mm -hmm. for the studio probably well, was i, I, I want to go back to the filming one more time because one sure. of the key sequences in the movie is when the well they call it the inciting incident the the engine starts getting on fire and there's an explosion just after the after david bryan and uh and uh, the other actor, I'm forgetting his name, are getting into a fight over a, a previous encounter. 
Uh, did Mr. Wellman do anything to create that explosive effect for you? What is he firing gunshots? Do you remember anything like that? Mm -mm. You know, those things are always put in later. It's the actor's responsibility and job to react to something that isn't there. Got it. And um, David Bryan was on that movie and uh, Robert Newton. And I uh, think it was Sidney Greenstreet. No, is that right, Sidney Greenstreet? Am I right about it was, that? It was somebody, I'll, I'll tell you. Sidney Greenstreet, was that his name? No, I'll tell no. you. It was Sidney Blackman. That's the one, yeah. I worked with him after that. And yes, so that they, they're having that row before all of mm -hmm. a sudden. Yeah, happens. yeah. And it's just an amazing moment. Yeah. Now, now you, you started, uh, you rocketed out of there, did a bunch of movies, and then you did a ton of television. Tell me how you were reintroduced to Mr. Kramer. Oh, all right. Well, I did a ton of, of television because when I was under contract to John Wayne and he kept me, I was the only one that was under contract to him, I think, except maybe for um, James Arness, who was also handled by my agent, <laughs> the same agent that got me started. He only had about 10 clients. He got us all working. That that, that well, kind it, of person doesn't, li doesn't, la doesn't live anymore. There's no one like that anymore. Well, Karen, it's funny you should mention him because I'm having Diane Baker on the show in, yeah. in the next month, so I'll I'll certainly mention that name. Would again. you do that? Yeah, she did. You know, I just saw her the other night at the Academy, um, and we we were sort of reunited. Um, she was after me. I mean, she came after. He would he would take one at a time, and when he got you started, and he felt you were going to be on your way, then he took on a new client. He would never take all these clients at one time. Never. What was his name again? Leon O. Lance. In yeah. fact, we were talking about that the other night. We were both there for. Um, that's the picture in the film. Oh, the new Kate Blanchett movie. Oh, she plays a concert. Uh, fantastic. Uh, yes. The, yeah, uh, conductor. The yeah, conductor. Yeah, conductor. Yes. Yeah, uh, wonderful. Uh, ta, uh, ta. Uh, yeah, that's. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, it looks very. Tar? I don't. Anyway, she and she was after me, Diane. Um, and so we all admired one another, but you know, once one got started, what would happen was that. Each one of us would then go to a bigger agency because Leon can only take you so far. I, I just think that was a big mistake on all of our part. We all left him finally when we got our start. We were doing really well. Then we went to William Morris or something like that, you know, who never did the same thing for us. But we were already in those days, if you were already established, and after I got the Golden Globe, too, for that performance, you know, from The High and the Mighty. Which was that must have been quite a quite a. Uh, I mean, you're you're you you win a Golden Globe for New Star of the Year, yeah. mm -hmm. along with Shirley MacLaine and Kim Novak. That's, That's pretty right. good company. Not bad. I just talked to Shirley the other, yesterday. I think we're still good friends. Um, well, tell her to call me because I, 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 her agent just can't get her to call me back. <laughs> well, Shirley, you know, doesn't always live here. She lives in New Mexico, New Mexico and, uh, exactly. and she's kind of like not really retired, but you know. She, she, we, we, we just adore each other. I, I'm a great fan of hers, and she's always been a great fan of mine. And my, and my daughter Catherine, whose picture you see there—that's Catherine, uh, up there. Um, you know, that was her hero. That was her idol for so many years. And, and Shirley used to come to cat shows when she would sing and dance and do all this. So she's always been very loyal, and we're very loyal to her. But uh, I do adore her, and. Uh, so and, you, you, you get reintroduced to Stanley Howe. Okay. Um, I never met Stanley when I did The Sniper. That was the first film I did. I was still in high school. 
and I had about three lines, but it helped pay for my entrance into the Screen Actors Guild. So, uh, you know, I used that, and I had forgotten all about that film uh, until Eddie Dimitrik, who directed it, reminded me of it. Anyway, um, so I'm making a film at, at uh, Paramount opposite Jerry Lewis called The Disorderly Orderly. Uh, he had, Jerry had wanted me for about three movies before that, and I said, can I be, no, you can't. I have to be a straight man for you all the time as your leading lady. He said, yes. I said, I, I don't know how to do that. I mean, I just, there's no meat on the bone for me to play. I don't even know how to do that kind of vacuous girl, you know? So I turned him down. But finally, um, my father had passed away unexpectedly. I had to go back to Texas and settle the estate. And I was gone for about a year out of, out of the business settling his, all of his estate that I had to take care of. And when I came back, I couldn't get, I couldn't get arrested. So Jerry knew at that time that I was looking for something and to try to get back in the business. So he offered me something I couldn't refuse. He tripled my salary. He had Edith Ed make, make my clothes. I mean, he was a great, a great job that he was very sweet to me that way. Um, and across the way, they were making a film called Ship of Fools. And um, with Vivian Lee. <laughs> who was, you know, God, my favorite actress. I'd never seen her before in my life. And I would watch her in the commissary every day, you know, and uh, and he had a huge table with Jose Greco and her and this whole cast of thousands. And, and, and I would just sit there and my, practically, I wouldn't eat lunch. I'd just look at them, you know, thinking there's that director. What's his name? I couldn't think of what his name because I'd never met Stanley Kramer, you know, I could do that. <laughs> anyway, I was more interested in Vivian Lee, of course. So... You know, also Jerry was just like the high and the mighty in a way. He would come in and have his stand-in rehearse with me all the scenes that we did together. And I was his leading lady. And um, That's kind of obnoxious. He was, but very talented. Very, very, very bad in certain ways, but so talented. But anyway, um, and then he, he would step in and we'd do the scene and he'd print every damn first take. But I was good at that. I knew how to do that because I was used to it. <laughs> Not to, you know, cost people a lot of money. I, I just was knew what I was doing. So it, it, it worked opposite him. I did fine. But because we wouldn't rehearse or spend a lot of time on the set with me or anybody else for that matter, um, I had some free time. But I couldn't go home because I was going to appear maybe in a couple of hours under the scene. So I got up enough courage to walk onto that closed set of Ship of Fools. And I never saw anything like it. Stanley had that whole damn ship there. I mean, I thought, what? That whole that whole luxury liner in that on that soundstage? And I've been in the business for a number of years and done a lot of work in film and especially in television. But anyway, I was just absolutely down. I was dumbstruck when I saw it. And I heard this voice say, who is that? And I thought, who who is he talking? Who is that? Who is that guy up there? That must be that director. What's his name? I I was looking. I thought, oh my god, I shouldn't be here. You know. So somebody came to my rescue. Must have been a makeup artist or somebody that had worked with me. That's Karen Sharp. Blah blah. And he said, okay, you can stay. And I said, oh, thank you. I thought, God, who is that guy? And um, <laughs> but I felt uneasy. And Vivian Lee actually was working at the time, so this was a real thrill for me. 
But I wasn't supposed to be there because it was a closed set and I knew it. And I'd never done that before in my whole career, walk onto a set. I had enough trouble on my own set, let alone worry about somebody else's. But I just had to see Vivian Lee, you know? And um, so, you know, a few days later, I left. I left. I didn't stay. And a few days later, somebody, I think it was on that set, probably the same man that kind of said that's Karen Sharp. Um, and he, Stanley said, you can stay. He caught up with me and I was on my way to lunch. And he said, you know, you should have stuck around because Stanley Kramer wanted to meet you. I said, oh, that's who that was. I said, well, why? Is, isn't uh, isn't this film cast? And he said, well, I don't think that's what he had in mind. I said, oh, I never, I never, I never, I never go out with these people. You know, I don't, I don't do that. I mean, I'll see him over the desk for a role, but I don't, I don't date people in the industry. And was that a hard and fast rule for you? Yeah, always. Interesting. Very interesting. Never did. So um, my agent called me. I was, I was doing the Jerry Lewis movie at the time, you know, and my agent called me and I was now with William Morris. And he said, uh, I had a call from Stanley Kramer's office. I said, oh, Stanley Kramer. He said, well, he's directing and, and you know, Ship of Fools. I said, oh, yeah. Oh, that's who that is. That was Stanley Kramer. I said, uh-huh. I said, well, isn't this film cast? He said, well, Aaron, I don't know if that's what he had in mind. I think he, he would like to take you to dinner. I said, well, you know how I am. I, never, I don't do that. You tell him thank you very much, but. I don't, I, I don't have time. I don't, I don't do that. So it took Stanley about a year to get a date with me because he kept calling my agent. And I kept saying, get me out of this. Get me out of this. If he wants me for a movie, I'll be happy to go into the office and meet with him, but I'm not going to have dinner with him or anybody else. So Stanley just never stopped calling. So finally, he, my agent said to me, you know, you've got to take this call. I, I'm, I can't keep making excuses for you. I said, well, fine, have him call me. I said, Mr. Kramer, thank you so much for your invitation, but I'm working and I, I never go out when I'm working. And he said, well, you seem like you're always working. I said, yeah, I am. Aren't I lucky? And so I said, well, 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 well call me next week. And he called me a few times. And finally I said, okay, I can give you a couple of hours. I said, I, I'm working over in, 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 in the valley and I'm through about six and I, and I can give you till eight o'clock and I'll meet you at the tail of the cock, which is a restaurant that was in the valley. There was also one in Beverly Hills. And he said, oh, the one in Beverly Hills? I said, no, the one in the valley. It was dead silence. I said, Mr. Kramer, I don't blame you for not wanting to come over the hill. If you don't want to come over the hill and take me to dinner, it's fine with me. Don't worry about it. He said, no, 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 I'll be there. So we met at six o'clock at the tail of the cock restaurant in the valley. And I spent the whole time waiting for it to be eight o'clock so I could leave. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and I kept looking at my watch so I wouldn't be too noticed that I was looking at my watch. Said, oh, eight o'clock, I gotta go. And so- oh, oh, wait, wait, before you finish the story, did, was there any chemistry at all? Not really. I was thinking about my, my, my the next day's work because I was about the work. I was not about getting involved with any romantic situation with anybody in this got business. Got it, got it. So uh, I said, oh, I got to go. So um, so my agent comes by to see me at, at, on the cassette, you know, a few days later. And he says, well, how did it go with Kramer? I said, well, okay, let, let's just look at it. I said, first of all, I'm never going to work for him, okay? 
And I doubt if any of your other clients will ever work for him either because I was very rude. I didn't mean to be rude, but you know, I don't like to go out, particularly if I'm working and I don't go out with people in this industry. So I did you the favor. I got you off the hook. So now leave me alone and don't discuss it, but don't ever enter my name for any film that Mr. Kramer is doing because I was very rude to him. So I finished the job that I was on and a few days later, I ended up in the hospital with a appendix that had almost burst on me, almost died. <laughs> and guess who sends flowers? It was in all the papers where I was, what hospital I was in and all that, because I was a, a young star at the time, you know. And uh, guess who sends flowers? And uh, wants to bring me dinner and all that kind of stuff. And I said, mm, thank you, but no thank you, Mr. Kramer. You know, I really appreciate this. Very sweet of you, but no thank you. Thank you for the flowers. Well, he wouldn't stop. Uh, so I finally said, okay, um, you know, I, I come over and I, and, and we'll have a cup of coffee and whatnot. Anyway, this, I was so crazy about the fact that I just didn't want to have anything to do with him. <laughs> and so I was very close to a friend of mine called Henry Wilcox, and he was about 20, years older than I was. Oh, sure, of course, working and, with Cecil B. DeMille, wonderful actor. Well, I was supposed to be in the Ten Commandments, and he was DeMille's right-hand guy at the time. Really? Um, and I was supposed to play the Deborah Paget part. I worked. I had auditioned in front of Mr. DeMille several times, and he said, I want you. I was even costumed. And there was a contractual thing, a problem uh, with with Deborah Paget, who was not under contract to, uh, to uh, what was that, not Warner's, it was, where was Paramount. it? Paramount. She was under contract uh, someplace else. But anyway, there was a something. Anyway, she ended up playing the part and I didn't. Um, and so um, so I asked, but I but I did play. I did play her. I did play that part on live TV on uh, Hallmark Hall of Fame. OK, later on. So but I called Henry Wilcox and I said, listen, I have this very sweet guy. He's dropping in to bring me dinner and it's not that i'm afraid of anything i'm not but i'm just getting over these stitches you know from the appendix and all that and i really don't feel up to it but i feel like i have to do this would you mind just dropping in unexpectedly and carrying the conversation with me so i don't come off rude and he said of course so he knocks on the door and i have to invite him in and he said oh i don't want to interrupt you i said well it's fine and anyway he and stanley began to bond and and then Henry says to Stanley, well, you have to come over to my house for dinner. And Stanley was really, he said, oh, I'd love to. And he said, and bring Karen with you. And <laughs> I was like kicking under the table, but I said, okay. So I said, okay, well, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there, Mr. Kramer. And he said, please call me Stanley. Anyway, so I said, all right, Stanley, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you at Henry's house, which I did about three times in a row. And I fell madly in love with him. I didn't say much. I listened to him talk, and I felt he was so genuine, so different from anybody in our industry. He was not like that at all. He was so nervous around me, which always gave me it was so. I was so amazed that he'd be so nervous around me. It should have been reversed, you know, but it wasn't. And um, I married him six months later and never looked back. Wow, that's a great story, Karen. Just a beautiful story, and 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 Stanley's. Stanley made so many iconic films that just never get old. I tell, I'll tell you right now that every year I watch On the Beach. Oh, me too. That's my favorite Stanley Kramer movie, oh, actually. I mean, it's a movie that everybody on this planet should to see. see. 
They don't, don't know why they don't play it as often as they do other ones. I know. I think I know. maybe, you know, I, I remember I remember that movie. In fact, before I even met Stanley, it was playing at the Grandma's Chinese, and I, 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 I went to see it in the afternoon, not in the evening. Um, and I just, the film just completely blew me away. But all of his films were magnificent films. Well, I have to say, not because I was married to him, but because he really was a great filmmaker. And oh, yeah. um, I mean, it's funny. Uh, speaking of funny, going from from great drama, great meaningful drama, to my favorite comedy film of all time, Mad World, which is Mad World. Oh I, yeah, everybody I mean, says that. <laughs> I know. I mean, just the <laughs> logistics of getting that cast together. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, you think about making movies today, uh, you know, you spit twice and it's $200 million. And, I know. And, you, and, and movie making has become just so fraught with expenses and marketing. And the It's fact, not the same business as it was. It's, it's hard to be same. creative within this business. Well, I was going to ask you about that because you yeah. participated in the bit. Now, you know, obviously people are still making movies, they're still oh, making yeah. television, but my sense of it, and I've been in the business quite a few years myself, and I'm also a filmmaker now, and I'm out there trying to sell film and TV every day. I just get <laughs> the impression that the in, in back in the day when you were right on the front lines, there was a lot more dignity about it. Oh, yes, business. absolutely. Oh, yes. In fact, it was easier, I think, to really get ahead in this business than it is today. It's almost impossible today. Um, as I said, I was very, very lucky. Lucky Luck has something to do with it, I think. It doesn't mean that I was more talented than anybody else. I wasn't. I was just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And the timing worked out for me. And, um, and I had done so much work by the time I married Stanley and decided to give it up. He never asked me to give it up. But I knew that I couldn't do justice to a marriage. And he had two children by his first marriage that lived with him. He had custody of them. And I really wanted to be everything that I should be and wanted to be for him because I could never make the kind of films Stanley was making. And I, he was such a different kind of person. You know, Stanley was never impressed with himself. His ego was just not there. Uh, he didn't have that kind of ego. And he was a family man first before he was anything else, which also was very, very rare. And how lucky was I that I made that decision by listening to what he had to say to my with my friend Henry Wilcox, and I just sat and listened to them, and it's, fell in love with him. You know, it's funny because I, I had a wonderful interview with Henry once. I was, did you? Uh, yeah. I, 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 I and unfortunately the unfortunately the project was aborted, but I, I was about to do a book called the Historical Films of Charlton Heston. Oh yes. <laughs> And so Henry, of course, him, oh, sure. in of... the Warlord, etc., with that big blonde wig, and yeah. I remember uh, spending some time with him. Uh, the other thing about Hollywood in back in the day was we had stars that just just shined. I mean, it did. The, 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 well, I, I think I, what I tell you what I think happened. Um, you know, now mind you, I'm not against this man because I think he's a brilliant actor and whatnot. When Marlon Brando came along, you know, Stanley discovered Marlon Brando. His first film was called The Men. Right. And um, he went on to do Streetcar Named Desire. Then he came back to Stanley to do The Wild One. Um, that changed That changed something in the way we approached acting. And it, it, 
became a more of a pedestrian way of doing films. In other words, you had to really represent people the way they were, not with a glossy opinion of them. But I always think we need our heroes and heroines to look up to, to want to be like that, to be better than we are. And so as interesting as Marlon was, it did, and then James Dean was also a friend of mine, by the way, I have a whole lot of James Dean stories too. He came, he came out right just about the time uh, Marlon was uh, at the height of his career, then along came James Dean, um, who was not like that at all. He was very different than his image. Um, you know, it, it, it had a more of a reality base to it. And I still love the glossy musicals. I still love bigger than life performances and stars that I can want to be like or emulate. And you just don't have that today. Well, and so know, the luster to me is gone, you know? You, well, you mentioned that Marlon's arrival in the more pedestrian form of yeah. acting, you know, more realistic to mm -hmm. the world. But I think it also co coincided with the fact that the studios, uh, uh, abandoned the contract system so they were no longer manufacturing actors they were you know the whole star system the whole building up stars and doing things i think disappeared people were kind of on their own and you know we end up with uh wrestlers as actors we get bodybuilders well, today anybody anybody can do it today and it is an art form after all i mean oh yeah uh well, fortunately there are still interesting movies to make and I, I in looking at your imdb profile it does mention that you have been working on for a few years a sequel to it's a mad 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 world well i have but i've never been able to get it off the ground so i don't know why they get resistant to it well it was you know it it was originally when stanley made it it was five hours long, and Sandy edited it down to four. Uh, and then, of course, uh, UA took it over um, when Stanley got married in 1966. In 1968, he lost control of the film, and they edited it down to three and some hours. But um, And it broke his heart, actually. I'm used to it now. I've presented that movie ever since. I'm always presenting that movie and telling the stories about the cast and how that happened and all the stories people want to know. Does, it, and, does that, does that five-hour version exist? No, Stanley edited, edited down. You know, Stanley was also an editor uh, and made his living as an editor before he became a producer, then producer-director. Um, and he always edited his own movies, although he gave other people credit for it and didn't take credit for it. Um, but, you know... It, it was just a unique thing because how that happened was Stanley was having lunch in New York with a major critic by the name of Bosley Crowther. Oh, sure. Of course, New York and Times. Bo yes, that's right. And Bosley just loved Stanley's work. I don't think he ever gave Stanley a, a bad review. In fact, he praised him all the time. So they were having lunch in New York when Stanley was there to promote one of his films. And Bosley said to him, you know, we uh we we critics you know we we talk about you guys and you know what they say and what we agree on about you stanley and he said well no well am i supposed to ask you what do you, what do you say about me and he said yes because we say that you're probably the greatest filmmaker of the 20th century but there is some thing, one thing we all agree on that you could never ever make a comedy it was dead silence. And Stanley looked him in the eye and said, oh, yeah? And that's all he had to say. And Stanley was bound to determine it to prove him wrong. And Stanley set out then to make a comedy that would be the comedy of all time. 
to prove him wrong that he could make a comedy. And that's how It's a Mad, 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 Mad World was born. And um, and Bill Rose was at William Morris, and I think Stanley was worked with all the agencies, and uh, he sent him an idea on a piece of paper, about three or four lines, and Stanley said, absolutely, that's it. He went to New, uh, New Jersey, not to New Jersey, yeah, Jersey Island off the coast of London and worked with him on this screenplay. And it was originally, when it was finished shooting, it was five hours long. Oh, my God. Stanley, Stanley was also, you know, an editor. He was a very good editor. He made his living as an editor for many years. Well, um, and he edited down to four hours in which he opened it and built the Cinerama Dome Theater in Hollywood to open It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And it was, I remember seeing it. I didn't know Stanley at the time, but uh, I remember seeing it the very first week when it was actually four hours with intermission. And I mean, that film just blew the roof off everybody. It was everybody's favorite film. I can't, can't tell you, I can be in any place in the whole world. I can be in a little village or someplace, unsuspecting and somebody will invariably come up to me and say are you mrs kramer i'll say yes i am do you know do you want to know what my favorite film is i said yes it's a mad 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 world he said how do you know that and i said because everybody tells me that and i have been doing introducing that with my daughter Catherine, who's patricia uh, ever since i mean we just introduce that film all the time and i never think who's going to show up we have we, there's never enough seats available for people well, I, who still have, want to see that with, movie. With my writing partner, we've been focusing on writing comedy for the last nine years and getting oh. closer to fruition. But it's very challenging to sell oh, very. comedy today at a time when comedy should be king, as it was mm. back in the 30s during the Depression. It's very hard to get people excited about comedy. And of course, doing a, a sequel to It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World is an, an incredible challenge. Well, I wrote it. I wrote the sequel with Stanley's permission. I said, may I write the <laughs> sequel? And he said, yes, you may. And he loved it. I could never get it off the ground. Um, you know, and I tried. But, you know, that kind of that kind of experimental takes, takes a, a kind of a filmmaker that's not afraid of failing. Oh, yeah. um, and like, almost like a general, a general who he, he, to win the war. And he, you know, he was not known for comedy, but this was really, if you look at the whole storyline, these cars are going down a highway and one of the cars goes over the cliff and he dies and tells them where the loot is. You know, that could have been a serious drama, too. It could, but of course, when you cast Jimmy Durante as yeah. the guy, Kick in the bucket, yeah, pretty it gives, amazing. It gives you a sense of what the movie's going to be. I, I, we could talk about that movie forever. Oh, forever, Karen, yes. Karen, you know what? You know what I'd like to do is invite you back on in the in the new year and have a it's a mad 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 world day because I, I think we could have a lot of fun. Oh, oh, those people all became my friends. They were my dearest friends, Jonathan Winters, every single one of them. They were at my wedding when we Stanley and I got married, and they were at the reception, and I got a chance to meet them, um, you know, the first night of my life with Stanley. And, um, and they became our dearest friends. Every single one of those guys was very close to us and continued to be very close to me after Stanley's death. It's it's a it's it's you can't even call it a classic cast. It's a it's the ultimate cast. It and, is. Uh, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he did the films he did, 
But, uh, you know, he had a string of films right in a row, starting with, you know, um, with, gosh, that whole, after, um, hmm, On the Beach, and then he did, you know. Um, Inherit the Wind. Wind, and, and Judgment at Nuremberg is a phenomenal film. Mm-hmm. All these films. So, you know, and he was home for dinner every night at 6 o'clock. Well, before, never, before never we, talked about it. Before <laughs> we finish, you, you must tell me at least one of your James Dean stories. Oh, of course. Okay. Um, James Dean, when I was in high school, at Hollywood Professional School, just when I was starting my career, my best friend at the time was Joan Davis's daughter. Joan Davis was a, a comedian. Sure. Uh, had quite a, quite a lovely career, and she was my best friend all through high school. And um, And she was... My my child, that childhood sweetheart during high school was John Gary, the singer, and her and hers was James Dean. He was older than all of us. He'd already graduated from college, and was an actor. Uh, and we used to double date all the time. Um, and when she broke up with him, Joan Davis's daughter broke up with him. He ended up on my doorstep, and uh, could not get over the fact that he had lost. Beverly Willis was her name. And so my mother and I kind of took him in and, and helped him through that. And then he told me that he was going to go to New York. He was leaving and he wanted to see us before he left. He was leaving the next day and he said, I found out the secret. When I come back, I'm going to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a star. I said, Oh, good for you. You know, I wish you the best. You know, I didn't believe it. He was a little guy, you know. I didn't think he was that talented, but I didn't know. And I never heard from him again. And then my career started, and I'm, I'm un, under contract to Warner's Brothers after The High and the Mighty. I come walking down the street one day, and here comes J- James Dean, Jimmy, coming right toward me. I said, Jimmy, we, we hugged. We were so thrilled to see one another. And I said, well, well, he said, well, you've just become a huge star. I'd won the Golden Globe by that time, you know, and I was under contract through John Wayne's company to Warner's and doing publicity for them and, and things like that. And I said, well, Jimmy, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm doing this little movie. I said, you've got a role in a movie? And he said, well, yeah, this little movie. I said, well, what is it? He said, well, East of Eden. I said, I never heard of it. He said, yeah. He said, listen, Karen, if somebody comes around and I change personalities and I get moody and I don't look at you, I don't look at them and I mumble, that's my act. Don't give it away. I said, oh, well, I won't, of course. So so he said, I'll meet you in the drugstore across the street. From Warner's, there used to be a little drugstore. We used to go, you know, and we were through what we were doing on the lot, maybe studying or auditioning or whatever. And I would meet him over there for ice cream or coffee or something. And he'd be just normally Jimmy that I knew. And then suddenly somebody would come in and say, hello, Karen, and uh, hi, Jimmy. And then he'd go into his act, get really moody acting and, you know, wink at me. And But that was an act. And of That's course, when great. I saw it, when I saw East of Eden, it blew me away. I never knew. I knew because I'd known him, you know, all the time. He dated Beverly Wills, my best friend in high school, and we double dated all together. And I knew him, and and you know, saw him. My mother took him in because he was so upset over losing Beverly as his girlfriend, and going to go to New York. And gonna, he found out the secret what to do. Well, he just copied Marlon Brando, for sure. But you know. Those stories are so rare because that's not who he really was. 
but he made it a success and he he died so young so sad so sad you know but anyway i have a lot of stories about a lot of wonderful people that i knew and uh during those wonderful wonderful young years and the business is so changed it's just not the same as it used to be it's so hard to sustain today you do one movie that gets you a good review or you get a golden globe or you get a something um you know it doesn't mean you're going to be a successor or continue making a living in this industry today. My children are very talented. Both of my daughters are very talented, and Stanley's daughters are daughters. And, you know, it's very difficult for them. Are, they, are they both actresses? They're actresses. My, my uh, Catherine is also a, a wonderful singer, and now she's a producer. She's also a writer. And my youngest daughter is a concert pianist and actress, and she's making her her movies herself and uh that, that to me is the i think part of the solution especially for people working in film today is if you can do it yourself without having to, to wait in line with 12 billion other people go for it i think if you can make the right movie uh and not have to to you know uh build a bank to produce it i mean it's it's gotten to be at a point. It's 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 this. It's a thought, and I'll talk to you about that off camera. I'd love to talk to you about that sometime yeah, because it sure. really is very difficult. Very different sure. business today. Oh yeah, absolutely. hard to sustain anything. We were so blessed yeah. in the fifties. We didn't realize how blessed we were. It's yeah. always a difficult business. It's never been an easy business, but it's been an easier business back then than it is today. It's sure. hard to sustain. In those days, we could sustain it. One good review, one little award can assure you of working for the rest of your life. And, um, you know, well, assured we, me. We, um, we have to, uh, we've come to the end of our, 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 our broadcast, but I, wanna, I just want to say that we've been listening to Karen Kramer take us down memory lane in so many different wonderful directions. And uh, you've met so many interesting people in your life, Karen, and to be, uh, to be with Stanley all those years, uh, treasure just treasure uh just wonderful treasurable moments and just listening to you in your total recall is just like having a radio to that period which has been great uh thank you for those stories i love going through memory lane it was it was fun for me too to relive it in a way talking with you it's been a great pleasure well thank you so much everyone we've been uh, listening to the latest chapter of Saturday Night the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Karen Kramer, also known as Karen Sharp, has been our wonderful guest. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much, Karen. And thank you.